From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Millions celebrate the U.S. visit of the charismatic Pope Francis, where he spoke about our duty to the poor, to every living thing, and to our planet. Now is the time for a culture of care, combating poverty, and at the same time, protecting nature. The power of the Pope's words in America. Also, forests in the southern U.S. are being cut down to provide wood pellets for European power, thanks to EU renewable energy subsidies. If the subsidy structures were not in place that were incentivizing renewable energy, this would not be an economically feasible industry. I mean, they're getting wood from one country, shipping it all the way across the Atlantic, and then just burning it in a power station. So it's not that efficient. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Mr. Speaker, the Pope of the Holy See. Pope Francis has kept a busy schedule on his tour of America. He celebrated large and even larger masses and spoke directly about the urgent need to address climate change to crowds at the White House and delegates at the United Nations. But he was more measured in his speech to a joint session of Congress, a Congress that has yet to enact any comprehensive climate protection. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, honorable members of the Congress, dear friends, I am most grateful for your invitation to address this joint session of Congress in the land of the free at the home of the brave. His speech was graceful and his words well chosen, with plenty to please the public as well as the lawmakers, and he urged them to keep in mind the dignity of all human life and the need to protect it. The Pope cited America's history as he spoke of liberty and dreams, inclusiveness, economic justice, and peace. Pope Francis has been critical of the excesses of capitalism, but before Congress he called business a noble occupation, especially when it creates jobs and sustainably uses resources for the common good. This common good also includes the earth, a central theme of the encyclical which I recently wrote in order to enter into, into the dialogue with all people about our common home. We need a conversation which includes everyone since the environmental challenge we are undergoing and its human roots concern and affect us all. In Laudato Si, I call for a courageous and responsible effort to redirect our steps 
until aware the most serious effects of the environmental deterioration caused by human activity. I'm convinced that we can make a difference. I have no doubt that the United States and this Congress have an important role to play. Now is the time for courageous action and strategies aimed at implementing a culture of care and an integrated approach to combating poverty, restoring dignity to the excluded, and at the same time, protecting nature. The chamber was packed. Members of the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court justices, and the cabinet were all there, and the applause was often long and loud. We called up Representative Alan Lowenthal, Democrat of California and chair of the Safe Climate Caucus, for his reaction. You know, it really touched on all the aspects that the Pope had written about in, his, in the encyclical. One of the things that struck me is the Pope has a way of presenting very controversial issues in a very positive way what needs to be done rather than to point his finger at blame. And I think that came through. What was the mood in the chamber when the Pope was talking? You know, the excitement in the place, you know, it was electric in the chambers. It was very interesting when he began to talk about climate change. All the Democrats jumped up and supported it, and one or two Republicans did, and then a few more Republicans did. And you gradually saw Republicans, at least some of them, beginning to step up and to acknowledge. It was one of the few times where there was a, a real difference between the response of members of Congress. When the Pope spoke in the public session with President Obama, he said that climate change is a problem that can no longer be left to future generations. Yet in front of the uh, Congress, he didn't actually mention the words climate change. What do you make of that? Well, I don't make anything. I think the most important thing is he called upon Congress to take courageous actions and strategies in implementing what he called a culture of care. And I think that's very important, which was an integrated approach to combating poverty, restoring dignity to the excluded. He talked about the same time the need to protect nature and that really we now have to devise, as he pointed out, intelligent ways to limit our power, to put technology in the service of a healthier, more humane, more social, and a more integrated approach. He did not directly mention the words climate change, but it was really clear that he linked the changes in the planet, that he was saying that those that are most affected or will be are those that are poor, those that have little voice, and we have a responsibility here as elected officials to come up with actions and strategies to protect those that are most vulnerable, and not just in terms of inequality, which he did talk about, but also about the impacts of climate. So in other words, the Pope is a master politician here, not actually saying climate change in front of the Congress when it's safe to say so at the UN or at the White House. Why is that politic, do you think? Well, I think the Pope's overarching message was it is time to come together to solve these problems. He was interested in identifying the problems but not antagonizing people to such an extent that they would not work together. And I've kind of adopted the same techniques 
On the Safe Climate Caucus, what I did when I took it over, there were 47 members, and they were all Democrats. And I've spent a great deal of time reaching out to Republicans, talking about how can we work together on the issues of climate change. So how many Republicans do you have? Well, we've waited until the Republicans put out their own resolution talking about climate change, I think under Mr. Gibson, and I think there are 10 Republicans, and we now would like to sit down with those and others. And I think they've worked very hard at at least identifying 10 Republicans who acknowledge that change of climate has to do with human activity. And I think that's the first time they have ever acknowledged that publicly and put it into a resolution. And I think that's a great first step. The Senate side, led by Maria Cantwell, the Democrat from uh, Washington State, has filed a, a bill on climate that she says obviously won't move unless and until there's a Senate majority after the election. But what do you make of this filing, and what do you think the Pope's appearance does for the prospects for that kind of legislation? You know, I believe that it has been since the late 1990s that climate and environmental issues had reached a tipping point of critical importance. And I think that what has happened was that shortly after we began the 21st century came the 9-11 issue. And even though everybody knew or we talked about it, it became less of an important issue. We were dealing with survival. We were dealing with terrorism. We were dealing with a instability throughout the world. And climate change dropped off the radar. I think what is occurring, and one of the things about the Pope's message is, it's part of your call to solving some of the problems of the world, whether it's immigration, whether it's climate change. You cannot separate these problems, and it's time for these to emerge as the major issues before us. And so I think the issue is to re-elevate the status of the environmental danger that confronts us. That's Congressman Alan Lowenthal, Democrat of California. For a Republican perspective, we called former Congressman Bob Inglis of South Carolina. Well, I heard him talk about the spirit of enterprise, which is very exciting because that's what we think can fix climate change. In the well of the House, he never used the words carbon or climate or ecology. Why do you think that was? I don't know. I, I, I wondered about that. I think that his comments in the encyclical clearly speak for themselves. But I think he was definitely onto something. He was talking about the spirit of enterprise and congratulating America on that. That may have been a way of reaching the crucial constituency for action, which is actually conservatives in America. And so by congratulating the spirit of enterprise and uh, uh, maybe applying that to climate change, but not using the words climate change, he was doing something very effective reaching into the hearts and through the hearts into the minds of uh, fellow conservatives. Now, famously, there have been some Republican candidates for president who have poo-pooed the Pope speaking out on climate in his big encyclical. And overall, how do you think the main body of Republican lawmakers responded to the Pope? Well, I was very heartened by the speech because I think that he's talking about things of the heart. And when it comes to action on climate change, it's mostly a matter of the heart. The head's very clear on climate change. The science is pretty clear. The economics are even clearer that there's a very easy answer, which is just eliminate all the subsidies for all the fuels, attach all the costs to all the fuels, and the free enterprise system will sort it out. I think that there is a tendency to 
minimize the importance of faith, the gospel is much bigger than uh, most of us are thinking, and that, um, that there really is quite an answer at the cross for the redemption of all of creation. And so limiting that, saying that somehow the Pope isn't qualified to speak on the stewardship of the earth, seems to me a rather strange limitation to place on him. The Pope was very strong speaking about the right to life in his address to Congress, a number of ways that he took that message. One was to oppose the death penalty and others to lift people up out of poverty. But clearly another way is the right for our living systems on the planet to support us. What was your take on that? Well, I think that he's on solid ground there, that um, applying that, what some may think broadly to creation care, is not really that far away from being pro-life. I mean, it is is all the same thing. Is you, we have to preserve a sustainable system in order to have life on this beautiful planet that we've been given. The Pope didn't come out strongly against capitalism in his speech in front of Congress. He did say that there's a right and proper way to use natural resources, though. What do you make of that? I think that the Pope is actually right to question capitalism unrestrained by Judeo-Christian ethic. If it's not restrained, then capitalism is really a pretty lousy system. Communism might be better because at least it starts with the fiction that we're all going to share and share alike. Now, it never works out that way. But the strong message is biblical accountability, making it so that I can't do on my property something that harms your property. And the specific application to climate change, of course, is that currently fossil fuels are allowed to socialize their soot. It means that if I make electricity from fossil fuels, I'm able just to dump into the trash dump of the sky, foul up other people's lungs, foul up their property. And what the Pope seems to me is on solid ground is speaking of that kind of accountability. And if he puts it in the context of creation care, that's a fine place to put it. And if he wants to expand that and say that that's protection of life itself, well, he'd be correct in that. And it is, in fact, pro-life to talk about sustainability in that way. Conservative denominations have been very strong in politics. What influence might this appearance by the Pope have on where things go from here? This is uh, possibly one of a series of turning points where we expand the constituency for action. The climate change has been a conversation started by the environmental left. It's a conversation that conservatives don't feel so comfortable entering. But when you have a very conservative institution, the Catholic Church, entering the conversation, it brings an opening for conservatives, uh, certainly for conservative Catholics, but also for others of conservative faith who agree with the Pope on many things and the teachings of the Church on many things. So it could be a, a game changer in that it's adding new people to the conversation former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis of South Carolina. If you drive from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, you might notice that much of the road is built on stilts. That's because there's little solid ground in southern Louisiana. But there is a fair amount of wetland, with trees rising up out of the water. Cypress Swamp used to cover much of the American South, but today it's only found in isolated pockets. 
The Atchafalayan Basin in Louisiana is one of the country's last great cypress swamps, and that's where Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald met up with a man determined to help save it. Dean Wilson doesn't sound like a Cajun, but he's been living in the swamps of southern Louisiana for 30 years now. I remember the first time I saw the swamp, I fell in love with it. You know, you see the, the beautiful green trees with the Spanish moss over water and those egrets flying around like angels. Uh, I just really fell in love with that. Dean grew up outside of Madrid in Spain, but he came to Louisiana in his early 20s on his way to South America. He wanted to get used to the humidity and the mosquitoes before doing scientific research in the Amazon. But he never left the Bayou State. When I realized I could actually make a living of the land, uh, I decided to stay. I was a commercial fisherman for 16 years full time. So I made my living hunting and fishing the swamps of the Chafalaya Basin for 16 years. Dean says people call all kinds of marshy wetlands swamps, but true swamps are actually pretty rare, and the Atchafalaya Basin is the largest in the United States. And the difference between a swamp and a marsh is a swamp is a flooded forest. So you actually go in the springtime when the water is high, you go with a boat through the forest, and you can see the birds and the animals, otters, minks, alligators, everything that lives in the swamp. It's a magnificent place, one of the most beautiful places in the earth. The cypress trees grow to different shapes, they can live up to over 4,000 years old. So the cypress trees are incredibly beautiful. A few years ago, Dean gave up commercial fishing and turned his attention to protecting the cypress forest he calls home. Now, Dean patrols the swamp in his little motorboat as the head of the conservation organization Atchafalaya Basin Keeper. Today, Dean and I are joined in his boat by his German shepherd, Shanka, and a fellow conservationist. Uh, I'm Paul Orr, and I'm Lower Mississippi Riverkeeper. Mississippi Riverkeeper is another environmental organization devoted to protecting the area's wetland resources. Paul unties our boat and we push off into the channel. Here we go. Dean steers the boat out of the main channel into the flooded forest. The depth of the water in here varies with the seasons. It's early spring when the water level is low and our boat gets stuck on the mucky bottom. The water, you know, as the snow melts up north and the Mississippi River rises, but obviously we haven't gotten to a high enough rise to get through here yet. All right. Do you want me to push while you yeah, steer? Yeah, that'd be good. There you go. There we go. <laughs> We're free. It's always an adventure. Dean pulls the boat through the undergrowth into a clearing in the forest, and suddenly hundreds of giant cypress trees are all around us. Their trunks flare out at the bottom like grass skirts. Dean says this cypress forest is teeming with life. Uh, the swamps of the Chafalaya are considered by scientists the most productive in the entire world. You can go to the Amazon and get a wetland in the Amazon, and you may have more biodiversity. But you get an acre of the Chafalaya Basin, and you're supposed to get more pounds of fish and crawfish and you know there's wetlands in the world. Full-grown cypress trees have nooks and cavities that birds love to nest in. Nearly half of the waterfowl population in North America come at one time or the other to the, to the Chafalaya Basin. So it's a critically important ecosystem, not only for North America, but the whole Western Hemisphere. As we float between the trunks, Dean says that swamps like this one once covered much of the American South. Most people have seen the Amazon River flooding over millions of acres of rainforest. Where the Mississippi River used to be, 
do the same thing. You used to flood 24 million acres of forest. And for somebody to picture how, how big is 24 million acres, it was a time where you could get in a boat ride. Right now, this time of the year, and through this water, you could go through this forest and never leave the forest all the way to Missouri. But that 500-mile waterway didn't last. A lucrative timber industry developed in Louisiana around 1700. And then, in the 19th century, new steamship technology allowed companies to log southern cypress forests quickly and efficiently. By the year 1900, it was the largest industry in coastal Louisiana. It was the cypress logging industry. And uh, people thought it would last forever. By 1920, it was all over. They logged every single forest in the state. They didn't have a single acre standard. In 1927, the Mississippi River spilled its banks, killing hundreds of people and displacing hundreds of thousands in the most destructive flood in U.S. history. The Army Corps of Engineers responded to the crisis by building levees all up and down the Mississippi to control the flow of the river. The levees were designed to protect cities like New Orleans, but they straightjacketed the river and prevented the natural flooding of Louisiana's cypress swamps. You drain all those forests, Farmers come in, they cut the trees down, and today is mainly farmland. When people drive through Arkansas, North Louisiana, Mississippi, through what is called the Delta area, it's all farmland, it used to be like the Atchafalaya Basin. Today, although the Atchafalaya Basin is smaller than it once was, it's still one of the last great cypress swamps left in the United States. Like all swamps, it's protected under the Federal Wetlands Protection Act, and Dean Wilson and Paul Orr want to do everything in their power to preserve it. In 2008, they noticed an uptick in illegal logging in the Atchafalaya. They followed the supply chain all the way to the garden mulch aisle. We realized pretty quickly from following the logs and then finding bags of cypress mulch and then following those to Walmart, Lowe's, and Home Depot that there was this tremendous push to try and build a cypress mulch industry. But Dean says that the companies that supplied the mulch weren't clear about where it came from. Home Depot Lowe's and Walmart were selling the mulch as environmentally harvest. The bags will say, made with environmentally harvest cypress from Florida. You have a Florida address. So they're actually deceiving the public into buying the mulch. And, and deceiving the retailers. I think the, some of the retailers weren't very happy that that was not what it said it was. So when Paul and Dean brought this to the attention of the retailers in 2008, the stores agreed to stop selling Louisiana cypress mulch. But Dean's still worried about illegal logging. He says the problem is enforcement. We have laws to protect wetlands. The problem is the laws are not being enforced. And the, the, the government is putting in the resources to enforce it. They don't even have a vote. So they cannot be enforced. And Paul Orr believes that problem starts with the cozy relationship between big business and the state government. I guess it was like the late 90s, early 2000s, the Louisiana Department of Economic Development put an ad in a lot of like the national publications and it was like a guy in a suit doing a backbend and it says Louisiana bends over backwards for business. Oh my God. And that's really been the culture in Louisiana. The wealthy business people just give away all of our natural resources and our tax monies and everything for business. Among the latest businesses to arrive in Louisiana are European power companies. In the past 10 years, they've begun harvesting wood in the southern U.S. to burn for power back home. This type of electricity production is called biomass energy, and Adam Macon, campaign director with the environmental nonprofit the Dogwood Alliance, says that it's taken off in Europe as the result of a decision to classify trees as renewable. 
And it was really a, a, a mishap in an old IPCC report that essentially classified all forms of biomass as carbon neutral, meaning that when they burn them, they would be counted as zero in terms of countries counting their carbon emissions. So that really opened the floodgates for trees and forests to be chopped down and burned because it was all being counted as carbon neutral. Western Europe tightly regulates what forests it has left, so it's easier for energy companies to come all the way over here to harvest trees from states like Louisiana, Mississippi, and North Carolina, where Adam Macon says a lot of the forests are on unregulated private land. So essentially it's the wild, wild west of logging. Companies can come in and log anywhere, um, use any type of logging practices, generally unchecked. So it's the perfect place for an expanding industry like the wood pellet industry to come in and be able to get a lot of wood very cheaply and very quickly. And Adam says it's only cheap because it's getting EU renewable energy subsidies. Uh, if the subsidy structures were not in place that were incentivizing renewable energy, this would not be an economically feasible industry. I mean, they're getting wood from one country, shipping it all the way across the Atlantic, and then just burning it in a power station. So it's not that efficient. But currently, because of the subsidies, it is a cheap form of energy. There's a simple logic to classifying biomass as renewable. Trees grow back. If you cut down a tree and burn it for electricity, all you have to do is plant another one in its place to sequester all of the carbon that you emitted when you burned that first tree. But Adam says that doesn't account for time. Well, the issue is that trees take a very long time to grow back, particularly these hardwoods and wetland forests that we're working so hard to protect. And when you're thinking about the carbon uh, analysis from that perspective and in terms of mitigating the worst effects of climate change, we realize that we don't have 50, 60, 70 years to wait. In the meantime, some recent studies have found that burning biomass could pollute as much as or more than coal over a 50-year period. We all know that coal is a dirty form of energy and we need to you know, move away from coal. But if the solution is to burn a form of energy that is emitting three times as much carbon into the atmosphere and count it as zero because the fact that 70, 80 years from now, hypothetically, that forest is going to grow back, uh, that's just we have to acknowledge that we're moving backwards there, not forwards. Adam Macon says the biomass industry isn't just a problem for the climate. It's changing the nature of southern forests. Where once you had different types of native hardwood forests, now it's mostly planted pine. Forests have just become a complete crop in these areas. They have converted so many, many acres of precious wetland areas to monoculture pine plantations. And a pine plantation contains about 95% less biodiversity than a native standing forest. But Professor Dale Green of the University of Georgia says biomass producers aren't clear-cutting virgin woodlands. They're mostly operating in forests that have been intensively managed for years. What's really at the nub of the debate is whether you assume you found the forest or whether you assume that the forest you're about to harvest is one you planted yourself and invested in and took care of for 20 or 25 years. For the most part, Professor Green says biomass companies are harvesting pulpwood that might have otherwise been used for paper production. Because most of the land in the South is privately owned, he says you need industries like biomass to encourage landowners to keep their property covered in trees. What we've clearly seen historically is the stronger the markets for wood, the more 
likely landowners are to replant. And, and that's our real threat to our forest acreage is landowners deciding to harvest their trees and put it into row crops or put it into pasture and put cows on it. And while a pine plantation may not have as much biodiversity as a native cypress forest, it's better than a pasture. A stand of trees, even if it's a stand of planted pine trees, does much better for our air and water and wildlife habitat than a field of soybeans or a bunch of cows out there on the landscape. Dale Green says that until we can find a better way to store energy from intermittent sources like wind and solar, biomass is one of the only renewable energy sources that's ready when you need it. But Dean Wilson bristles when he hears the word renewable used to describe forests like the Atchafalaya where we are today. Because what people think when they hear that is that these wild forests in Louisiana are renewable and if you cut them down, they come, they come back. They have the potential in theory to come back, but in reality is they don't. And as you can see here, they didn't. He points to a stand of ash trees where a century and a half ago cypress stood tall. When loggers cut down the cypress 100 years ago, different species replaced them because the conditions weren't right for cypress anymore. Dean says that the hydrology of the region has changed so much since the Army Corps of Engineers started building levees that there's almost no chance for cypress regeneration today. So anything that you cut today, they ain't going to come back in this area. It's unclear whether biomass producers in Louisiana will ever log the Atchafalaya Basin. A British power company called Drax recently built several wood processing facilities in Louisiana, but so far it's been using pine from plantations. In April 2015, Dean Wilson met with Drax, and company officials assured him that they would not harvest cypress from wetlands like the Atchafalaya. Drax touts its biomass as sustainably harvested and is even working on a carbon capture and sequestration project in England to make the operation carbon negative. The company says that it uses mostly waste wood and leftovers from timber harvests, and it doesn't source from virgin wetland forests. But Adam Macon of the Dogwood Alliance says that he's been to biomass clear cuts in North Carolina. We know from North Carolina and Virginia that this industry and pellet manufacturers such as Drax and Inviva are not above logging in wetland forests. They're actively doing it, and they're going to be actively doing it in Louisiana if they can get their hands on it. The Dogwood Alliance is working to organize communities across the South to fight the biomass industry and convince Europe to stop subsidizing wood pellet production. Dean Wilson is focused a little closer to home, trying to protect the wetland forest where he lives. But he says it's hard to convince local people to care about a swamp. The problem is most Louisiana's never been in a swamp. Hollywood gives that image of a swamp being a nasty place, you know, dead, full of mosquitoes, devoid of life. So who cares if they cut a swamp down? Is, you know, and that's what the people feel about swamps. And, uh, I don't know how to change that. Paul Orr says that whether people know it or not, wetlands like the Atchafalaya are vital to the state. They shelter cities from storms, provide fish habitat for the lucrative seafood industry, and they're uniquely of this place. The swamp epitomizes the culture of Louisiana, sort of the, the heart and soul of Louisiana. It's where the Cajun culture evolved, and I think you can quantify it by saying, like, oh, it's important for migratory birds, it's important for animals, it's important because it reduces storm surge, but it's also there's just sort of a intangible connection that 
that Louisiana has to the swamp. But Louisiana has also long played host to many of the nation's extractive industries. Paul Orr says oil, timber, and chemical companies have been pillaging the state's natural resources for years. And there's a limit to how much Louisiana can give. When all the oil's gone, when all the trees are cut down, what is, what is Louisiana going to have? Before you... So but these, are, these are like the really the things that I think are the most important to preserve for future generations, because it's really what makes Louisiana unique. Floating through this flooded forest with Paul Orr and Dean Wilson, two dedicated swamp defenders, I can understand why they don't want to give this up. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald in Louisiana's Atchafalaya Basin. Coming up, the U.S. Navy turns more whale-friendly. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Congress is running out of time to avoid a government shutdown, and caught in the Capitol Hill crossfire is a tiny budget item with a huge impact on conservation, says commentator Derek Jackson. There are probably few Americans alive who have not enjoyed the benefits of some of the more than 41,000 projects supported by the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Since 1965, it's preserved heritage sites spanning Civil War battlefields to civil rights monuments, watersheds to hunting grounds, and wilderness hiking trails to urban bike paths and skate parks. The fund helps protect and expand prairies, forests, meadows, riversides, seacoasts, and city green space. It's been such a bipartisan success that even the most controversial person ever to lead the Department of the Interior, James Watt in the Reagan era, called the fund one of the most effective preservation and conservation programs in America. Even today, in a hyperpartisan Congress, many Republicans have signed on to bills that propose to make funding permanent, though the House leadership wants to cut its budget by 38%. At the 11th hour, a consensus is building that this is no time to cut the fund. Last week, I went kayak camping in the Umbagog National Wildlife Refuge in New Hampshire and Maine. With the aid of the fund, thousands of acres have been added to the refuge. Umbagog is the last place bald eagles nested in New Hampshire in the era of DDT, and the first place they came back after the ban on that dangerous insecticide. As I paddled, an eagle blasted out of his tree perch above me and dived into the water for a fish so big and heavy it could not lift off. It paddled with its wings to shore to eat, ignoring a fellow photographer and me as we took portraits from just 50 feet away. For both of us, it was a lifetime moment of intimacy with our national symbol, an intimacy created precisely because the nation gave that eagle a place and the space 
thanks to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Commentator and photographer Derek Jackson. Well, the bald eagle that thrilled Derek Jackson is an endangered species success story, sufficiently recovered to be delisted seven years ago. But the Interior Department has decided that the greater sage-grouse does not need ESA listing. Its survival will rely instead on specially protected private and public lands. And on public lands across the country, you'll find an amazing variety of avians, as Mary McCann points out in today's bird note. The diversity and richness of bird voices across the United States. Wow. In the southeast, at Florida's Ocala National Forest, a Bachman sparrow sings a lovely, clear, whistled song. In the Midwest, at Rice Lake State Park in Minnesota, a yellow-headed blackbird offers its gruff repertoire of growls and toots. After dark in the southwest, at Arizona's Bill Williams River National Wildlife Refuge, a black rail utters its unmistakable call. And in Alaska's Denali National Park, a willow ptarmigan chuckles loudly across the tundra. <laughs> but all of these places have something vital in common. They are part of our national public lands, lands owned by us, the American people, comprising nearly 850 million acres of land and 3.5 million square miles of ocean. Our public lands and waters provide habitats vital to more than 1,000 species of birds. Now that's something to crow about. I'm Mary McCann. For photos of the willow ptarmigan and all those other birds, including the bald eagle, whistle on over to our website, LOE.org. And now let's check out what's going on beyond the headlines. Peter Dykstra of the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, that's ehn.org, has been scoping that out, and he's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. Hi, Steve. You know, one of my all-time favorite books from about 20 years ago is called The Geography of Nowhere by Jim Kunstler. It's an angry, snarky assault on the suburbs, particularly how shopping malls have helped erase main streets and small businesses and the idea of a public square in so many places. But there's something cooking in a Silicon Valley town that could reverse that decades-old trend. A failing shopping mall could become the heart of a new town center, all topped off by the world's largest green roof. Well, we'll hear you out on this one, but it all sounds, well, a little too good to be true, Peter. Fair enough. And it's not true yet. It's just an idea, as reported by the folks at Fast Company. But the Valco Mall in Cupertino, California, has an ambitious plan. And if it's approved, the owners are committing $3 billion to turning their half-empty food court and rows of vacant stores back into a vibrant downtown. Cupertino is the headquarters for Apple, so there's got to be a bit of money in that town, right? And one might assume that the folks in Apple's hometown have a bias to online shopping rather than mall trips. So maybe that explains the failing mall. The Valco Mall hopes to transform its space with community gardens, farmers markets, Main Street-style stores, trails, bike and hiking paths, and a 30-acre park in place of a mostly empty parking lot. Let's wish them luck with a groundbreaking idea. Indeed we should. Hey, what else do you have today? 
from the exciting world of social science research. You know, actually, this is a little exciting. It's a lot interesting, and it's absolutely relevant to the world's climate politics. Research in the journal Politics and Policy surveyed the major conservative political parties in the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and five European nations, and guess what? American Republicans don't have an outright monopoly on climate denial, but the phenomenon is far more universal among U.S. conservatives than in their counterparts in the eight other countries surveyed. So in these other eight countries, they've gotten at least a little beyond arguing about whether climate change is a hoax, huh? And only Australian conservatives oppose measures to regulate carbon. Still in those eight countries, the dominant conservative parties acknowledge that climate change is a problem in need of solution. In keeping with conservative philosophy, the solutions are generally market-based, and there's no blanket rejection of renewable energy. And meanwhile, here in the U.S., we had a pitched battle in Congress to turn back the menace of energy-efficient light bulbs. With the crucial climate talks approaching in Paris in December, I found this to be some really good insight. Time to drag another gem out of the history vault, Peter. What do you have for us this week? Well, some of us might be feeling a little poked out at this point, so here's another charismatic contemporary religious figure with strong views on human influence on the environment. On September 26th and 27th of 1985, 30 years ago, we witnessed one of the greatest miracles since Noah and the Ark. Hurricane Gloria was bearing down on the East Coast with Virginia Beach in the bullseye. The night before, the most famous resident of Virginia Beach took to the airwaves in the face of clear and present danger. That's right, the Reverend Pat Robertson prayed to rebuke Gloria. And wouldn't you know it, Gloria made an abrupt, sharp right turn and spared Virginia Beach. So at this point, Pat Robertson is taking credit. And uh, is there a happy ending? Well, for Virginia Beach and Pat Robertson's headquarters, maybe... But that sharp right turn took the storm into Long Island and southern New England. Cape Hatteras got a big storm surge. Virginia Beach got doused with rain. But eight people lost their lives in the Northeast after Gloria turned northward for a direct hit. So did Pat Robertson acknowledge that Gloria wasn't 100% rebuked? He did. And on his TV show, The 700 Club, the next night, the video's on our website at LOE.org, he actually said that the people of Long Island and New England may not have been praying hard enough. Give the Reverend credit, though. Virginia Beach has a pretty good record of being spared from direct hurricane hits. Pat Robertson says he prayed one away in 1964 and again in 1995. Oh, a triple play, or maybe a triple pray. Well, thank you, Peter. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Talk to you next time. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And as well as the Pat Robertson video, there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. The history of whales and humans has not been happy, at least for whales. We hunted some species nearly to extinction, and several countries don't observe the current hunting ban. Plenty of whales are also maimed or killed by huge cargo ships that plow into them, fishing nets and lines that entangle them, and incessant ocean noise that deafens them. Well, now there's a modest victory for whales off Southern California and Hawaii. In response to a lawsuit brought by the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Navy will restrict its use of damaging sonar in key whale habitat. Zach Smith is a senior attorney with NRDC. Welcome to Living on Earth, Zach. Thank you. What exactly did the Navy agree to do here? Well, the Navy agreed to do several things. Most importantly, they agreed to set aside certain areas within their range where they conduct training and testing activities and set aside those areas where they won't use particular types of technologies that are dangerous 
for marine mammals, such as sonar and the use of explosives. And so we identified those areas in Hawaii and Southern California that are important to marine mammals, and many of those were set aside where they'll no longer conduct those kind of activities. We also got an agreement that should help reduce the incidence of ship strikes, which are problematic for blue whales and other great whales that migrate along California's coast. Now, how did this all come about? Well, it's a long story. I'll give you the short version. Okay. In 2000, there was a mass stranding of beaked whales and other species in the Bahamas. And uh, very quickly, some scientists started to link it to the Navy's use of sonar in that area. And a report over time was conducted by the Navy and the National Marine Fisheries Service, which concluded that sonar was, in fact, the cause of those strandings and deaths of those marine mammals. And kind of since that time, literature has developed, scientific research has been conducted, and NRDC has had several lawsuits in which we have challenged the adequacy of the Navy and the Fisheries Service's analysis of impacts. So that story kind of continued until close to two years ago, a year and a half ago, we sued over the Navy's five-year plan to conduct training and testing activities in Southern California and Hawaii, where their own models estimated more than 9.5 million incidences of harm to marine mammals over five years, hundreds of deaths they asked for authorization for. So we sued and said that they hadn't done an adequate analysis, that they had not prepared adequate measures to protect marine mammals. And we won in court on all claims under the Endangered Species Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act. And then the question was, well, how do we then remedy their violations of law? And that's the settlement that we just reached. How big a deal is this from the perspective of cetacean conservation? This is very important. I mean, it's a huge victory for conservation for marine mammals because what it does is, for the first time, says, how can we achieve those national security goals and the training goals that we have, while at the same time maximizing protection for marine mammals? And so thus, for the first time, you see the the Navy and the Fisheries Service sitting down, uh, looking at the biologically important areas that have been identified for different species throughout the ranges, and trying to determine whether or not they could set aside those areas or take other steps to limit harm in those areas. And that is something that the Navy had been resisting doing for years. And so in that sense, it's incredibly significant. And it's a model that should be used for the Navy going forward and could be applicable to other agencies as they plan activities along our coasts. By the way, how does sonar impact whales and dolphins? Sonar has a range of impacts that it can have on marine mammals. On one end of the scale, you have outright death. Um, If you're close enough to a sonar source with the kind of high-intensity sound that is emitted from those sources, um, it can lead to internal organ damage. There are indications of bleeding from the ears and and the eyes. and, And so there's those kind of impacts at the very, you know, closest range and the most horrible ones. As you move away from the source and the less severe types of injuries would be permanent hearing loss, temporary hearing loss, um, which are still incredibly significant for marine mammals. They depend upon hearing for all of their interactions in the environment. The ocean is a very dark place after you get down deep enough where they spend most of their time. And many scientists, including the great Sylvia Earle, have said that a deaf whale is a dead whale. And so even estimates of temporary hearing loss are, are very concerning. And then it kind of peters out, but it's still incredibly significant. 
behavioral disruptions, which are habitat abandonment, interrupting feeding opportunities. And over time, those kind of things subjected to populations day in and day out in these areas can really have um, an impact on the way in which um, populations can survive. What more does the Navy need to do now? Well, this is a great opportunity. The, the kind of collaborative effort that we were able to achieve through this settlement is hopefully something that we can take to the other ranges where the Navy conducts its activities it's along the Atlantic coast in the Gulf of Mexico, where there are even um, a larger number of impacts to the marine mammals that lives, live in those areas, Pacific Northwest, Gulf of Alaska, the Mariana Islands. I mean, there's a lot of areas where our Navy operates and where this kind of approach, which is very common sense, should be the next step. By the way, Zach, who else is operating in the ocean, uh, making a lot of noise that could be of concern to cetaceans? Well, there's three categories of, of no ocean noise contributors, which are the, the biggest categories. The Navy, sound from war games and, and whatnot that we've discussed, as well as uh, shipping noise, which is an incredible burden that is placed on the marine environment. They've done a lot of studies about that, showing this kind of background noise getting so so intense that whales and, and other uh, marine mammals, it's like being in a, at a rock concert. You know, they have to scream at each other to be heard. So shipping noise is a, is a huge issue. And then even more damaging kind of immediately if you're there is oil and gas development. And that is mostly through the mechanism of seismic exploration. They introduce incredibly loud sounds into ocean and basins. And that is a huge problem, especially when you're opening up new areas for naive populations like the Atlantic coast that have been off limits to oil and gas development for decades as well as the Arctic. So you start to introduce those kind of things, and there have been incidences of stranding events associated with oil and glass, gas exploration around the world, and that's, that's another concern and something that, that we're fighting on. Zach Smith is a staff attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Zach. Thank you. It was my pleasure, and thank you for covering this issue. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you from the campus of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the protection of the environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TUPress.org. And Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. PRI Public Radio International.